This is a humble man recording. Scano, Sego, Ani, you're listening to the Red Road Podcast with Courtney Skye and Hayden King. Traffic on the Red Road is moving very briskly this morning. So quickly that we don't even have time to record our podcast, actually. Yeah. Like the one time you want traffic on the red road to slow down. I mean, there's enough for a little bit. We we'll get yeah, the we gist in. We can do in. a little bit. We can do a little bit. We do a little podcast. Yeah. Uh, so if this is as long as we yeah. don't. You you just said something to me that was a bit jarring. Oh yeah, just like we are greatest fear about this podcast. Oh, the greatest fear about this podcast is that we're going to record our deaths. Yeah, I <laughs> I feel like that was the risk from the beginning. <laughs> Uh, I don't know why I never thought about that, but it's kind of terrifying. And now I'm going to be anxious about your driving even more than I already am. I don't want to record my own death. You don't think that that was a possibility? Like that? I feel like that's a huge, you know. I, yeah, I hadn't even thought about it. You ever watch that documentary <laughs> Grizzly Man where the guy gets attacked? This white guy goes up to Alaska and starts hanging out with grizzly bears. And everyone says, don't go hang out with grizzly bears and pet them and shit. And he does it anyway. And, and then, him? of course, they, they eat him. But he was filming every, all of his encounters and interactions. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, so he, he filmed himself getting eaten. And it was haunting. If you ever watched that documentary, Grizzly Man. I mean, so there's a huge risk of car accidents and all of that kind of stuff. I feel like that's a reality, you know, vehicle safety. I'm a very good driver, as you have begrudgingly admitted several times on this podcast. No, yeah, you're a good driver. Uh, you're not good driver so and i feel like i take vehicle safety very important you know we have a good vehicle good snow tires well maintained you know a lot of things going for us but at the same time i think i just think about death all the time okay (laughs) uh Uh, what do you call it you called me a fatalist one of the days when we were we weren't recording a podcast i think that was at your birth (laughs) chart as well yeah (laughs) Uh, so our last podcast, we talked about the uh, SNC Don't Touch the Lava, SNC <laughs> Lava Cushion, SNC, something about lava. Lava, uh, yeah. SNC Lavalin is, yeah, that's mm-hmm. a bad pun, maybe. Shouldn't mm-hmm. have run with that. Anyway, since we recorded that podcast and you've all listened, uh, there have been more developments, the principal secretary of the prime minister in the prime minister's office, Gerald Butts, has resigned. That was a big bombshell. That was followed by Jody Wilson-Raybould addressing cabinet just a few days later. Mm -hmm. And, uh... So it seems like she's going to talk in committee. And also, not only addressing cabinet, but she sat in the front benches, uh, even though she's not a cabinet member anymore. And the justice committee has allowed her to testify. And so, and Globe and Mail this morning sent out an article that said, you know, named the more of their unnamed sources saying that Jody Wilson-Raybould did tell them that she was um, improperly influenced or there was an attempt to improperly influence her. Really? Yeah. So, and, but they put it behind the paywall. <clears throat> Globe and Mail. Ah, see, now I don't know if that was the story. I think that she was saying that the pressure that she was feeling from the liberals on the scandal, not so much the pressure to oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, influence the decision one way or the other, mm. what, what was, which was improper. I mean, bef- before yesterday, when she spoke in the House of Commons, I assumed 
that Gerald Butts' resignation was a response to her saying Butts was the source of the pressure, Butts was the person that started to, sp to spread these rumors about me being difficult to work with. You get rid of Butts and we'll, uh, we'll play ball. And so then, you know, she, she, it seemed like she was back in the fold. But then she stood up in the House of Commons yesterday and said she's looking forward to testifying at the Justice Committee to quote-unquote speak her truth. Which indicates to me that her truth is different from maybe the PMO's truth. So, I, I mean, I don't know where this is going. This is, yeah. She's, she's uh, when, when I thought that she was going to uh, 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 fall in line, she once again shows that... Uh, She's not so easily cowed into uh, uh, that type of politics. Yeah. Exciting. Um, I missed all of that because I was darting the car between many lanes of traffic. <laughs> you held it together very well. Yeah, that was a little nerve-wracking. That uh, was very much like, well, it's it's ha it's a minute later. We've, we've done it. This I closed my <laughs> eyes. And just focused on the... Uh, political issues ahead. You did a great job. This is why we shouldn't talk about dying on the podcast because while we're recording the podcast, yeah, we'll die. <laughs> <clears throat> so we're. I guess that's a little bit of an update. This this is a wild story that's just going to keep keep going on. I don't know if uh, we've ever visited two, well, we've ever visited a single issue over two podcasts. Um, mm -hmm. Besides astrology, which is besides both astrology. of our secret passions. <laughs> uh, speak for yourself. So we weren't actually going to talk about Jody Wilson-Raybould and SNC Lavalin, but we were going to talk about child welfare. As some of you may recall, Courtney has had dozens of distinct and unique jobs. Dozens and dozens. And she has now made one more career change <laughs> out from... I don't know, how would you describe your previous job? My previous job? So my previous job, I was a program analyst with a provincial organization. I don't really, I still feel like I have like confidences and things, you know, signed agreements and, and all of that kind of stuff while I was working there. But I have, I guess, a common thread of the jobs that I have had is that I've worked for provincial representative bodies in Ontario around social policy issues. So I was recently working in the child welfare sector, not for any particular agency, but for essentially an association of and a collection of the not primarily non-indigenous children's aid societies in Ontario, working at, at a high level kind of provincial policy ask. Is there a worse job in Indian country than working in child welfare? Um, you could be a police officer. Okay. That's a, also a terrible job in Indian country. Um, I feel like the worst job in Indian country is any type of social programming where you don't have enough money to do your job. Yeah, but child welfare, it's like, you know, that's, this is, this is the one area where you're, you know, you're upholding a government neglect and, mm -hmm. and uh, discrimination and any good efforts that you put into the, uh, into that work are ultimately stymied by, you know, Canadians that don't really care about native kids. So it's, that's gotta be a tough gig. So I didn't work on the indigenous jurisdiction side of child welfare necessarily. And I wasn't a part of like the representative body that is First Nations child welfare in Ontario. I worked for essentially the white organizations and their work in advancing reconciliation and talking about like structural reconciliation within child welfare and 
um, you know, talking about these issues from a predominantly non-Indigenous perspective. So that is, um, I feel like people that are listening to this are like, oh, I thought she was cool. (laughs) That's an even worse (laughs) job than what you described before. Yes. So Uh, that is like, that is a very particular and hard thing to do. Um, I've worked on child welfare and like more generally social youth policy system transformation in government, outside of government since I started my policy career. So this is like the bulk of my work. And so working with essentially non-Indigenous people around how do they as allies support and advance Indigenous jurisdiction in a very practical way from like the individual child level to like a systems advocacy level is kind of where I've been sitting for about the past year. My contract ended. I chose to not renew that contract. So I am uh, a free bird. Congratulations. A policy tumbleweed just blowing in the wind. free. Uh, (laughs) I feel like you're also free from like hearing me complain (laughs) about this job. (laughs) Well, and not just like complaining about the frustrations of, you know, the difficulties of doing what is, you know, very obviously difficult work. Yes. Uh, Many of the conversations (laughs) on the Red Road that aren't recorded are Courtney just laying into child welfare. Um, So I'm happy for you that you no longer are in that general mental state of malaise and nihilism. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like nihilism is like still, you know, a central part of my being. It's got to be a part of you if you keep putting up with this over and over again. Yeah, right? yeah, like, yeah, exactly. I mean, now that's sort of a long segue. Basically, we want to say that you are effectively an expert on child welfare issues, and that comes in handy because the federal government is now passing uh, child welfare legislation, or rather, First Nation jurisdiction over child welfare. I mean, are legislation. they? Well, good question. Now, what we do know is that uh, three months ago, four months ago, the the then Minister of Indigenous Services, Jane Philpott, announced to the Chiefs of Assembly at the AFN that uh, a a piece of legislation around First Nation control of of child welfare would be coming. Mm -hmm. And we also know that in early to mid-February, they actually had a draft of the legislation. The Yellowhead Institute was able to to obtain a copy of the draft legislation. So we know that there is something there and we can talk about that draft. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also know that the federal government is very rapidly running out of time to introduce new legislation and pull it, <clears throat> push it through committees in the Senate and uh, uh, for it to become law before Parliament rises in, I think, about 11 weeks now, 12, 11, 11 yeah. 12 weeks. So when this first was kind of floated... Um, it was actually, you know, firmly kind of a thing with a policy framework for the legislation at the AFN in December, which is the first time we really got to dig into like what their policy basis was. And you you and I were there. I don't know. You didn't go to the child welfare session. I did. So they, the AFN presented with, uh, Kevin Hart and Mary Ellen Triple Font, kind of like the policy realm they had negotiated to inform essentially the federal bureaucrats that were going to be developing the actual bones of the legislation and so that was the first time where it seemed like okay they have they're on a path right and so we were able to see in Ottawa what was going on there and then um you know the committee seeing this kind of like timeline of the work that the national indigenous organizations have been doing on advocacy to where the legislation got it's uh an interesting I guess uh gap 
there's a little bit of a jump in that uh, kind of sphere. But I think when, as far as it comes to like, you know, the broader public and the legislation actually being tabled, I think we've missed what was being messaged as the drop dead deadline to make sure that legislation was passed. It was earlier this week. So uh, February 18th is kind of the date that was being floated as like legislation after this is going to have a hard time. Uh, getting passed in time and so I uh, it hasn't come out this week you know we're still it's Thursday maybe later today maybe tomorrow maybe next week but we're quickly running out of time to practically see a piece of legislation go forward well we have seen the legislation or at least the draft legislation I, I mean this is one of the pieces of legislation at least of this government's mandate that I have seen two copies of already. That's that's rare. I think that uh, the federal government is pretty good at keeping a lid on on legislation during the drafting period. So I think it's clear that there's some dissatisfaction with this draft, and that's why um, it's being circulated. It's mm-hmm. been circulated to the media. Uh, it's been circulated to other organizations. People have been commenting on uh, commenting on it. Even the Assembly of First Nations, even Perry Belgard mm-hmm. came out and said that the draft does not go far enough to uh, 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 far enough for First Nations in terms of expanding jurisdiction. So, given all of those concerns about the draft legislation, it might it, it's not surprising that it's taking a little bit longer to get it right. But it also wouldn't be surprising if if the federal government couldn't deliver. Yeah, and another problem is is that like this legislation, given the tight timeline, realistically needs to be perfect. Like the committee process has to go very smoothly. All of these things have to go very quickly. And if there are problems in it, if people are going to you know use the mechanisms of uh, you know legislation to raise concerns about the content of the legislation, then they're I cannot stress this enough. They're go- they're going to run out of time, and it's very unfortunate because this is you know this type of push for something that has been very important for indigenous people, for grassroots people, for people in community, you know, talking about advancing jurisdiction, especially on child welfare. It's been a file that has, and an issue that's been very close and very tied to colonialism, uh, you know, security of our nationhood. And the fact that we're down to the wire in a four-year term uh, trying to get this legislation advanced is pretty alarming. It's clearly demonstrates the disconnect between like where communities are where nio advocacy is and where the federal government is and responding to that so let's we've both read the draft legislation so we can talk a little bit about it but in principle then it sounds like you are supportive of federal legislation on expanding first nation jurisdiction over child welfare i don't know if i'm supportive or not Okay. I feel like I mean, it just sounded it sounded to me just a minute ago that you <laughs> yeah. were saying that there's high stakes for people and the there government's got to get it right, yeah. got to deliver on time. Yeah, they ha- like that's what I mean. Like this in, in this entire project of you know liberal branded reconciliation, this is the federal government's mandate. It is important that they get it right if they're going to do it. Right? If they're going to do it, do I do I necessarily believe that um, you know what is going to be the best for communities is the legislated advancement of entrenching child welfare as a prevention-based service delivery model is that actually going to be the practical thing that gets that to the end i don't know i would say probably not but it depends because you see this kind of in the legislation 
at least uh, an idea that there would be a focus on preventative services, but child welfare and especially like meeting the needs of very vulnerable kids who are in need of protection, that's not like prevention is in that business, right? There's a there's two different. Uh, I think we're trying to talk about a, a bunch of different circumstances that a lot of different kids are in, and maybe not necessarily applying the right response to all of these different situations. And I think we need to get a little bit more in the weeds around what kind of social situations and circumstances we're talking about addressing with legislation. So it would depend on what's in the legislation, basically, is what you're saying. But in principle, could be a good thing. And how does it set a floor for what the rights of children are? And I think this is... so. Do you want to do, like, an overview of the legislation before I, like, sure. raise my issues with it? Okay. Yeah. Okay. First. So we have Yellowhead Institute, which uh, has graciously <laughs> uh, offered to the Red Road podcast a copy. <laughs> Yellowhead Institute has obtained two versions of the draft child welfare legislation. There are some slight differences between the two versions, but um, basically the child welfare legislation seeks to... Hold on, I'm just going to take a photo of this uh, beautiful lake here and Instagram it before I... uh, Sorry for the interruption. (laughs) Um, So basically, the child welfare legislation seeks to create a a structure by which First Nation communities that want to take over jurisdiction of child welfare can enter into an agreement with the Crown and create a child welfare self-governing you know, sort of a sectoral self-governing agreement, and in that uh, agreement they'll uh, define the roles and responsibilities for the provinces, the federal government, and the First Nation. What I think is remarkable about the legislation is that it says, for the first time in law, that jurisdiction over child welfare is a Section 35 Aboriginal right. So communities have an Aboriginal right to uh, uh, jurisdiction over child welfare. Uh, Another really interesting thing about the legislation, which I think is positive, although there's a catch in this, uh, is that when a First Nation enters into agreement and begins to make child welfare laws, those laws will prevail in any conflict between provincial or federal child welfare laws. So that's that's impressive, and and you know you generally when you look at legislation regarding Indigenous people, you 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 scroll down quickly to the role and the powers of the minister, and in this legislation, at least in the draft legislation, there's vi- there's actually limited power for the minister. So, uh, on a superficial reading, it actually empowers communities to a pretty significant degree to create these agreements and then further to create laws. Uh, that can't cannot be intervened in by uh, by either level of government. Now, the catch that I was mentioning earlier is that it's a piece of federal legislation that sets out the parameters of this relationship, and so there is a little bit of a uh, 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 a little bit of a discussion that there to be had about the powers of the federal government. So that's basically it. Now, the legislation goes on and describes, you know, under what circumstances a child would be apprehended, the priority for uh, placements for apprehension, um, and, and, and on and on. But, but basically that's the, the, the gist of the legislation. Mm-hmm. And I, I suppose the, the positive elements as well. Yeah. There's also some really interesting pieces around the um, what does the best interest of the child mean, 
what does that mean within the context of UNDRIP? What does that mean within the UN clarifications around the rights of the child when it comes to indigenous children and those types of pieces? What, what I think is the biggest problem with this type of, with this legislation, like as we were able to read it, is the fact that it doesn't provide a base level of service that is applicable to every indigenous child. So it's focused on community and jurisdiction as opposed to a child, an indigenous child, being a, a vulnerable person with specific rights need to be upheld regardless of any circumstances, right? So that's kind of the element of substantive equality, right? It shouldn't be beholden on a community and their ability to engage in this process, you know, getting into an agreement, asserting jurisdiction in this way. It shouldn't be beholden on a community to do that for their children to be treated with equity and fairness around the service delivery that they're getting. Because there are going to be communities that are never going to be able to establish their own agencies, right? Whether it's because of size, whether it's because of like the impact of trauma that they're having, you know, that healing journey of those communities is like, is long. It's going mm-hmm. to take a practical number of years. And there's nothing in this legislation that's saying the moment it's passed, the world changes for indigenous kids that are receiving child welfare services. And that I think is the problem that I have with it the most is that it's, it's creating this disparity, right? That children who are serviced in communities by agencies that get it are going to have better outcomes. There are going to be kids that are indigenous that are in indigenous, like, being serviced by non-indigenous agencies or other parts of the pro- other parts of the country that are never going to be able to access the community and culture-based resources with how this legislation is now written. So I'm a little bit confused because the you're not saying that we should hold up the legislation until all communities are ready to enter into these agreements and take mm-hmm. over jurisdiction over child welfare, are you? Mm-hmm. No, because there's already that disparity. So this is the thing, right? Like child welfare and First Nations taking control over the design, the programmatic elements of child welfare, that's been happening essentially since 1985. Mm -hmm. Like different First Nations communities have asserted jurisdiction through a number of different legal routes and, you know, sometimes in conjunction with their respective provinces to talk about developing their own service models, having, um, you know, indigenous uh, culture influence within their agencies, that work has been going on for a very long time. There's, um, I think there's 11 of those agencies, you know, whether they're pre-mandated or not mandated or not, that receive this kind of delegated authority from the province to be able to deliver that service um, in a way they see fit in Ontario. Those in First Nations or Indigenous-led agencies, they're able to be ex- uh, seek exemptions from pieces of the legislation um, that aren't applicable to them. So, for instance, um, if there's a rule that you need to go to court after five days, an Indigenous agency can apply to have that um, legislative um, requirement removed because they, if they receive a call from a family that is in crisis, they want to have essentially more than five days to um, stabilize the family before they... Um, have to go to court and make a decision that just doesn't always seem practical given some of the the travel and and, uh, geographical barriers that they face. So there's already been that kind of um, multi-generational development of indigenous child welfare 
that is sophisticated, that meets needs of communities, and different communities get that service. Other communities don't. And mm-hmm. I think that is something that was very compelling at the AFN that Kevin Hart um, raised was that there are some communities that have it that are doing well. Ontario has done very well in this. There are a lot of agencies in Ontario that are doing this very that do good child welfare work. But in other parts of the country, they don't even have this legal route available to them, right? Like there's no there's other provinces that have not behaved in the way that Ontario has to advance this kind of level of jurisdiction. And so other nations and other parts of the country want that same kind of equal footing. I'm very sensitive to that. I'm very receptive of that. Yes, I agree with that. These assertions of jurisdiction should happen. This it, it makes sense to me that this is the way that it's structured, you know, within the colonial framework of the Constitution and all of that. Like, this is kind of the only way a settler government could construct this kind of change in service delivery with all of their legal paradigms and all of their beliefs around law and their right to even govern or that kind of stuff. But I'm really concerned about the fact that there's not going to be kind of like this light switch moment change where all First Nations, Métis, and Inuit kids have this kind of understood set of rights and needs that agencies need to be beholden on to begin meeting immediately because this network of child welfare is something that already exists across the country. But in your reading, it seems clear to me that Ontario is basically the gold standard. Is that what you're saying? I mean, uh, it sounds like Ontario First Nations have for the longest amount of time been entering into the child welfare realm, at least uh, the way that it seems to be practiced today, um, devolving uh, responsibility from the provinces. And and uh, you're saying that, that um, well, I'm not exactly sure what you're saying. I mean, it <laughs> seems to me, it seems to me that yeah. you're saying that there are some First Nations that have been doing this for a very long time. I don't necessarily agree with you if it's your assertion that they've been doing a great job for a very no, long time. No, and I'm I mean, not we still that have a tremendous amount of... Uh, yeah. Children in care, children yeah. dying in care, children being harmed in care, yeah. moving into the criminal yeah. justice system or into uh, uh, substance abuse issues or... And you that's know, what and, I'm saying. And on like, and on. So there's still that problem. Yeah. I mean, we know that a lot of First Nation child welfare uh, agencies uh, are just as bad as non-Native child welfare agencies in terms of the hoops that they make uh, uh, parents jump through to get their children back. I mean, there's been a high-profile examples of this. Now, so on the one hand, we do have an increasing amount of First Nations that control their child welfare. So, uh, so, <laughs> hold on yeah. a second. And then there's a, then there's a broad swath that fall mm-hmm. under provincial jurisdiction. Um, and many of those who fall under provincial jurisdiction will not and may never qualify to sign into agreements mm-hmm. and have the capacity to make their own laws. So those ones... That, that, that's the big issue for you, is that unless there's something in the legislation that puts all First Nations on a level playing field to benefit from this law, you're saying it's inadequate? Um, no, because that's still focused on the community. It's still focused on community. It's still focused on administration. I'm talking about a descriptive kind of piece that says, here's what Indigenous kids are entitled to in service delivery. You know, they're entitled to have access to their culture. They're entitled to have access to land-based activities. They're entitled to 
safety they're entitled to be housed if they can't be with their family or their extended family then they're entitled to housing in their communities yes that's what the that legislation kind of, the legislation does say that though. but it doesn't like practically like it doesn't it says it but it doesn't say it as that being the only option it says this is the ideal yes ideally this is what happens but that the case that you're talking about where um you know children are dying and, and those kinds of uh those kinds of barriers that people face that is it's a big barrier it's a big barrier but it's people already know that those situations aren't ideal people already know that kids shouldn't be in hotel rooms or they shouldn't be you know placed outside of their community into residential service placements where they're displaced from all their communities like you don't think child like social workers are smart enough to figure out that that's not an ideal situation they are systemically they are systemically provided with no other option if you have a child and they need to be housed because their parents kick them out or this is not my child welfare experience this is like other experiences i've had working but if you have a child that has attempted suicide and their parents tell them to get out we don't want you in this house anymore you've brought nothing but trouble into our lives you're not welcome here we don't want to see your face again and you have this kid and they don't have anywhere else to go after they leave the hospital there's no hotel there's no bed for them to sleep in that night and the only option that you have is to fly them somewhere where there's hopefully going to be someone who is licensed by the province that says that they're going to be able to provide at least a place for that kid to sleep that night then that's where that's unfortunately where that kid where those kids go and And people know it's not people know it's not a good situation people know this is not the ideal but when the province systemically says this is the option this is the only option that you have is to use these um residential service placements that they are saying that they license that they're in control of that this is how they're providing services then that's the systemic situation that agencies are in and then workers that are in that situation feel nothing but frustration and know that they but they're beholden to that kind of structural piece what i'm saying is the legislation entrenches that same kind of systemic kind of establishment and service delivery and i'm saying that the structurally it's this kind of you know the best that people have been able to devise when it comes to a systemic establishment of community-based or community-driven establishment of a service agency or service model the legislation does not does not speak to the quality or baseline standards of what service looks like of what the actual services look like it's saying that these are ideals but it's not saying that children cannot be placed outside of their home communities into residential services. It's saying it's not ideal. Everyone knows it's already not ideal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it doesn't go far enough for you on that front. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's uh, a, a gap in the draft mm-hmm. legislation. But what about just the, just the process of First Nations being able to assume child welfare uh, jurisdiction because Ontario is a different circumstance. I know mm. that you know there's some boosting of mm. Ontario happening mm. right now, but not mm. every not every province is equal mm. when it comes to uh, governments accommodating First Nations uh, jurisdiction over child welfare. So what this legislation does is expand it to other provinces mm. where First Nations may not have had the uh, pathway to adopt that jurisdiction. So that has to be a good thing, no? Yeah, well, that's kind of like, I think, where you're saying, like, maybe I'm pro this legislation. Like, that needs to be, that, I think, should be expanded, that if there's kind of, like, these legal routes to assert that. What I think 
is the disconnect from this um, this legislation. What I think some people in community might be frustrated with is the idea of needing the government to say that you do have this power and control. That a lot of people will say that this is an inherent right. That it doesn't need to be legitimized through mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. through some sort of federal legislation. That the right to um, decide uh, around you know the safety and um, well being and care of your children is a right that every parent has. And so there's that kind of argument to be had around it. But I yeah, think, I mean, why yeah. doesn't the federal government just say pass a law that says child welfare? It, child welfare jurisdiction is a Section Thirty Five right. Period. Well, and that's that's yeah. all the all there is to the legislation. And then First Nations, wherever they are in the country, can write their mm-hmm. own laws and not be constrained mm-hmm. by what's in the federal legislation. Because this is the irony. I started out talking about how great this legislation was in terms of the province and the federal government get stepping out of the way. But you know, the federal government is prescribing the mm-hmm. scope of your First Nation child le- legislation law. And requires an agreement, uh, which is problematic because I think this government in particular is trying to funnel First Nations into sectoral self-government agreements. Mm -hmm. And there's a number of implications that Mm -hmm. we don't have time to discuss, but Yellowhead Institute has published an entire (laughs) report on. Um, So why not just do that? Why not just say, yes, child welfare is a Section 35 right and First Nations can do whatever the hell they want and then provinces Mm -hmm. can stop intervening? That's And I think that's the difference. And I know you're going to like... I know you hate when I do this, but when I, like, boost up and up Ontario and, you know, take ownership of that, there's probably, you know, we have listeners all over that listen to this podcast that are probably... Our Kujuak listeners are not going to appreciate the Ontario-centric nature of this podcast. So, I will say, if you read the Children, Youth, and Family Services Act, which is the most recent piece of child welfare legislation that has come out of Ontario, is that it kind of does that, right? Like, this is legislation that kind of... You know, the federal legislation kind of pieces this together and and spells out a number of different things and kind of says this is what the, you know, this is where child welfare fits for First Nations and here's what they're allowed to do. And, you know, does lay out the limited scope um, for here's what we're, here are the pieces that we're letting you have as opposed to being self-facing and saying, as the federal government, here's the limitations on us and our, our limitations in... Um, delivering and providing capacity to First Nations that have this inherent right and are practicing that inherent right. It's not regulatory on themselves, it's regulatory onto First Nations, which I think has been the entire problem with, you know, the legal regime that the federal government has been undertaking is this idea that, like, they're still trying to control and prescribe this the field that is available to First Nations as opposed to limiting their assertions onto themselves. It's not self-contained or self, uh, what do you call it? Self, um, limiting. I'm about to kill us in this freaking thing. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, often our debates or discussions, and I mean our with a capital O, revolve around this structural problem, you know, around what the federal government is willing Mm to generously give us, uh, Versus what it what it's not, and and um, you know I I think one of the problems with the Ontario legislation is that First Nations have to continually be accountable to and report to the provinces, and their child welfare jurisdiction can be revoked by the provinces if they're not meeting meeting certain standards, and you know uh, that's a, that's a tricky tricky conversation because we're talking about the lives of Indigenous 
children and youth here, there's yeah. got to be some measures in child welfare laws, First Nation child welfare laws, that do ensure uh, that that kids are protected. And there's got to be some consequences if, if there aren't. And I suppose that's what you were initially trying to say with uh, uh, some inclusion of the rights of, of the child. But Yeah, and I think that there needs to be uh, a kind of... Um, like, um... Uh, that these ideas around exemptions, that the idea around, you know, First Nations communities having supremacy or control over other provincial laws, that it shouldn't be seen as, like, a lessening of standards. It shouldn't be a lower level of standard for children. They should still be getting, like, the... And that's the thing, right? It's not, like, default to, like, the lowest common denominator when it comes to the services and systemic supports for indigenous kids it should be defaulting to the highest standard and this is something that like shout out to my first policy boss tim brubaker when i worked in six nations taught me as being foundational to developing good first nations policy is that if you have a provincial standard and you have a federal standard and your community's trying to address what those two are you should know what they both are but realistically it should be whatever one provides the best for your community right and if your standard for your community is even higher than those two thresholds you should be reaching that higher standard so the policy that you would put in place would be to what's going to meet the community needs and sometimes you might have to leverage the provincial standard towards the federal government to get better funding sometimes you might have to leverage the federal standard to the province to get better funding or or more security but ultimately it's around whatever achieves the most for your community not provides the least yeah and i think that this conversation about where the multi-level links of governance are between the provinces the federal government and first nations whether it's standards or delivery is an interesting one because I I kind of think a motivation for this piece of legislation is just First Nations and people like Cindy Blackstock giving the federal government such a headache over the discrimination in child welfare. They're sort of throwing up their hands and saying, okay, well, <laughs> this is too much of a political uh, landmine for us. You take it. Mm-hmm. You take control. We're tired of having to defend ourselves in court very publicly against human... Well, uh, uh, not in court, but in, at the Human Rights Tribunal against these claims of of discrimination. And so, you know, I, I think it's sort of in line with the philosophy of, you know, the 1969-1970s devolution and administration of... Or devolution of administration over services. Like, if the federal government can get rid of... Uh, having to be responsible for child welfare, even through their interlocutors, which are the provinces, um, I think that they'd probably be happy to do that, right? Provinces mm-hmm. are going to take a hit. The revenue is going to take a hit because they're not going to be scooping up as many kids and getting those federal transfers. But uh, in terms of motivation, do you think that 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 premise that I'm laying out there makes mm-hmm. sense? Yeah, I think that kind of the you know the arm's length. Um, responsibility of governments being able to say, well, through these agreements or through these transfer payment agencies, we've devolved this kind of control, but ultimately the risk and the cost of that risk to someone else, that's like, you know, I, I think that governments are quite happy when that happens because they they don't assume the risk and the liability around that. So especially given like the, like the, the legacy of discrimination of impacts of colonialism how so um you know doing that work of repairing and restoring communities and the health of communities 
where, where communities are willing to take that on themselves and essentially release the federal government from their responsibility to fix what they've done and what they've capitalized on, that sounds like a dream come true for the federal government. Right. And it's interesting, you look at all the pieces of legislation or all the policies where the Indian Act is falling away, and mm-hmm. I think it's, you know, we often talk, and I don't know if we talked about this on the, on the mm-hmm. podcast at this point or not, but the Indian Act is disappearing very quickly. Uh, people don't seem to realize it, but there's all these exits or or what mm-hmm. <laughs> or what some have called off ramps from the from the Indian Act, and child welfare is one of them. Uh, lands is another. Mm-hmm. Elections, membership, uh, and a lot of First Nations are taking these exits, and the Indian Act is applying less in their communities. But what's interesting, uh, and I'll take the First Nation Lands Management Act as an example, uh, because I've just been <laughs> editing a report on it. But <clears throat> the the federal government. Once the First Nation takes over uh, uh, jurisdiction of lands on reserve, they also assume the liability. Mm-hmm. Um, and the federal government is released from those liabilities. Mm-hmm. So I think what you're describing is, is common among mm-hmm. all the sectoral self agree- self-government light agreements mm-hmm. and processes that the federal government is, mm-hmm. is putting in place. Yeah. We're at the end of the road. We've kind of made it. We recorded this episode. We tried to record this episode before when it actually was right. working child welfare. Mm-hmm. And you really grilled me. I grilled you. you. you it was really uh, uncomfortable for a couple <laughs> days after in the podcast car. And unfortunately, that recording did not work. Uh, this was to much... my disappointment. <laughs> we can try and revive it. Maybe well, we'll tack maybe. on some of this to fluff out the time it here. It was our most we're... contentious conversation. And I was really... <laughs> our friendship I still has really not recovered. anti-child welfare. Uh, as if I'm, of course. As yes. if I'm pro-child yes. welfare, though. Yeah. That's no, no, no. you yeah, position right, right. yourself as okay, being okay, this, okay. like whatever. As if you believe in it, <laughs> or believe in any less than I do. Uh, well, um, that recording did not see the light of day because it can be, is. you know, it, it, yeah. Hopefully, this one makes it. And uh, there's much more to say. We, the commute was actually quite quick this morning, mm-hmm. um, so we uh, talked very fast and tried to jam a lot into. Mm-hmm. Uh, into 45 minutes. Or <laughs> driving four, slow, trying driving to hit forward, yeah. some red lights. Um, so if you have any questions, if you have any responses, like, by all means, always, you know, tweet us, uh, send us, uh, I don't know, Instagram, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter, send us some stuff, and let us know if you have any questions, follow up. So I, I have one question for you, though. Mm-hmm. Um, given that this podcast will probably come out next week, as, as is our practice, do you think that the federal legislation is actually going to be tabled? Oh, that's uh, that's a tough question to answer. I am going to say yes, mm-hmm. but I don't know, man. It's 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 they're going to get a lot of flack. I I, I I don't know. What do you think? I think that. It depends on where things are with Jody Wilson-Raybould. Right, right. Coming full circle here. Yeah, yeah. I think that is playing into it a lot. And I think that that is obviously a distraction and taking up a lot of the necessary people's mindsets. And I don't want to say that... Don't want to insinuate that she might be responsible for this, but I think that, like, it depends on... They cannot take another L on Indigenous issues. And if if this is going to be a loss then I don't think they would want to have something go bad with Jody Wilson-Raybould and then have this compound their yeah. the failure of their reconciliation yeah. attempts. I don't really have a lot of faith in Seamus O'Regan to move this through either, so... Seamus Private Jet O'Regan? That's right, yeah. All right, he's got a nice commute. 
Yeah, he does. Um, all right. Well, thanks for the lift to work. Bye. See you next time. <laughs> Have a good day. <laughs> You've been listening to the Red Road Podcast, created by Courtney Sky and Hayden King, sounding audio editing by Humble Man Recording. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, Google Play, SoundCloud, and iTunes. I've been driving in my Indian car to the pound of the wheels drum.